All right, welcome to a minor detail. Happy Sunday to everybody. My Pittsburgh Steelers won today, so I'm very happy about that. I think the Redskins won. Not sure about the Ravens, but uh, I don't know. Maybe we'll talk to former attorney uh, former Attorney General Doug Gansler about some football tonight. But that's my guest, um, the man himself, the man of the hour. I'm going to go ahead and welcome him. Hey, Doug, how you doing? I'm doing well, and I was at the Ravens game today, and they lost in overtime. They, oh, wow. See, you, so I'm you're glad you told me. So now you're on the taste football. Yeah, now you know what's going on. Well, the Redskins won. The Redskins won. They won by two points against the one of the worst teams in the NFL, but yeah, they did win. A win's a win. <laughs> a win is a win. It's, our our son likes the Redskins. Right. I'm a they, they, were, they were good. They played the, um, the 49ers, who are, have not won a game all year. Oh. And, uh, and the Steelers look good today. They bounced back, so that was good. Have you always and, 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 have you always been have you always been a Ravens fan? No, I'm a I'm a Redskins fan. In fact, I did a television show for seven years. Um, this is the first year I'm not doing the last seven years um, on Comcast Sports. The pregame show is the voice of the fan, and uh, did that. But I'm also a Ravens fan as well. You know, because Maryland has the luxury of having two NFL teams. So I like them both. Redskins, though, I grew up with, and Ravens more uh, because yeah. of my work in Maryland. Yeah, well, I, I've been to my fair share of Ravens games. Uh, my dad's a big Ravens fan. Um, we got a – in my family, it's kind of split between the Steelers. Um, we like the uh, – we like Denver Broncos. So it's – we're like a, a mixed football family. So it's – yeah. But I, I, yeah. I, I could we could talk about football all day long. In fact, Doug, you should go get a job as an ESPN commentator. Um, you could I would fill, like that. That would be fun. Yeah. yeah, you could fill the shoes of that that girl who was kicked off for for a couple of weeks for speaking out against Trump or something. Yeah, well, they they just actually did a total overhaul of ESPN this year, so they got rid of a lot of their 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 as they say talent, but. Yeah, I don't know. I think I'm good for right now. I'll just sort of be a, a fan. You know, when you're a fan, you can say whatever you want. When you're actually on television, you have to be a little bit more measured. So Well, you can, you can say whatever you want now because you're not running for any public office either. So That's right. That's right. That's right. So, and, I, my, you, and, and for better or for worse, when I did, I'd say what I wanted to. So I know you did, good. and that's that's why I've always thought you were one of the most interesting people in politics. And look, in full disclosure, when uh, I, I've I've been emailing you, I said, "Hey, Doug, you should run for governor." Um, so, but we'll we'll get to that. What have you been up to these days? So I work. I'm a lawyer, and I did 22 years in public service, 16 in elected office, and uh, so I'm in the private sector. Been there for working for a law firm in Washington called Buckley Sandler. And I've uh, been there for about two and a half years. I do, the, I do a bunch of different things, um, but the, the, most of what I do is I represent companies that have issues with state regulators. I do, do a lot with my former colleagues, the attorneys general around the country. I go to all the conferences. You know, we're, we're a pretty close-knit group of, of folks. And uh, do a bunch of boards. I, I started an inner-city lacrosse league about nine years ago up in Baltimore called Charm City, and I go up there every Saturday during the spring, and you know, on oh. board of that, we have 500 or so kids um, on that, and uh, a couple other boards, and you know, just keep uh, keep active. Yeah, um, you have two boys, Sam and Will, and um, are they are they involved in lacrosse at all? They both played. Uh, Sam, my older one, played at Penn on the varsity his freshman year, and then uh, stopped playing, which was just too Division One lacrosse. Now is very different from when I played, and 
it's uh, but it was, it was sort of all time consuming. But he enjoyed it, and they, he and my younger son Will, who's also they both went to the University of Pennsylvania, and my younger one plays uh, club lacrosse, and also he's the hockey goalie. So they're having fun up there. My older one actually graduated, and he works out in. Uh, Los Angeles for a company called Hyperloop, which you may have heard of recently. It's a oh, yeah. sort of Elon Musk-inspired company where they shoot people through tubes at 800 miles an hour. The future <laughs> of transportation. So he yeah. loves that, you know, kind of the tech world, and, and uh, so it's all good. Yeah, that's so, – um, yeah. my, my apologies for sharing a, um, a an alma mater with Donald Trump, who also went to UPenn. Um. That's right, <laughs> and, and I guess at least one of his – daughters did i think actually a bunch of his kids did but i yeah. think tiffany was was there when my when my boys were there it's a great school it's um oh yeah it's bigger and philly's philly's not you know your parents philly it's um i enjoy going up there and seeing them and it's a, it's a good spot so well you went to your undergraduate you went to yale and then of course you spent some time in new haven beautiful campus we stopped by there once and i i really love the campus it's a nice place yeah, it's, it's an arch- – when I was there, actually, the New York Times ran a story about how Yale's an architectural wonder, which it is. I mean, it's a beautiful school. New Haven has also, like Philadelphia, has gotten um, improved enormously. It was, it's, it was sort of a rough town when I was there. But, um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's great, and I uh, keep in touch with a lot of my Yale guys, and it's um, – yeah, that was a good, good experience. Do you ever, do you ever stop by the, the Skull and Bones the the front like the the front edifice. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a place you know you you not you can walk by it you know you can't really just pop in it's yeah uh, pretty pretty they they're, they're very exclusive um, they have fifteen people in it every year and and uh, you're not supposed to just sort of pop in there. But you didn't get tapped for but, that, did you? I'm, no, I have a lot of uh, friends that were in it, and uh, in fact, <laughs> I knew all the fifteen guys that were in it at the time. It's now co-ed. Um, which which it should be, and it is, and so that's all a little different scene there. Oh yeah, yeah. So you went to UVA to get your law degree, and then you came um, you came back to Montgomery County, um, and then you became uh, a state's attorney here. And you were state's attorney here in uh, in Moco from '99 until 2007, when you were elected to Maryland's attorney general. Um, Walk us through that. What was it like to be the state's attorney down here? Well, it was interesting. You know, it, it sort of. I know you like to talk about the politics, and the politics of it was interesting. So yeah. I've been a. Um, I actually worked for a clerk for a judge for a year on the Maryland Court of Appeals. I worked for a law firm for a couple of years, but, and then I went, was at the, a federal prosecutor. So I was an assistant United States attorney for six years, and I thought there was an opportunity to to run for state's attorney because I loved being a prosecutor, and I thought. The office needed change. It hadn't had any change in like 30 years, and it was kind of uh, an old boys network out there. So I ran, and um, you know the entire establishment was against me, and we were able to win and win convincingly, and and really made a lot of changes. You know, I brought in the, the you know the first Asian American ever uh, prosecutor. We really diversified the office, brought, brought a lot of women in. In fact, my chief deputy was a woman, and put women and minorities in the higher positions, and and really sort of professionalized the office. And, and we ended up having a, a, a bevy of, of high-profile cases, kind of. I remember right when I got there was the Mike, the Mike Tyson case uh, was going happened, and then we had the Sam Scheinbein. I don't know if you remember that case. Oh, yeah. It was a committed a murder here, went to Israel, and we had um, uh, just a, a, a huge thing. Obviously, 
um, at the end, we had the snipers, the Beltway snipers case, and that was um, very obviously difficult case. And we had many, many cases in between. And I actually tried my own case. I tried a guy named Garrett Wilson, who killed two of his babies for life insurance money, and they, they he said they were SIDS and they weren't. So he went to jail. And a guy named Robert Lucas, who who, who murdered Monsignor Wells in the parish, and then um, so it was you know there was just a, I always wanted to try my own case. I figured. I was relatively young at the time, and I figured I was asking my prosecutors to go into court and do the thing, so I thought I, I should do it, and I love doing it. I love trying cases. In fact, well, you know, I did it when I yeah. became attorney general. I did my own cases. So let's back up to the Beltway sniper case. I remember I was in high school at the time, and I think that went down in about the fall of 2002, and everybody in – I lived in Hagerstown at the time. I grew up in western Maryland, so – it was um it was a difficult time. Uh, we were scared. We didn't know if it would pop up in our direction. But in fact, Doug, they actually the two men were caught in a rest stop right at right outside of Washington County. It was the on it was on South Mountain, and they were they were pulled over, and someone discovered that their vehicle was in an arrest stop. And of course, that's where they were apprehended and and eventually arrested. Um, right. That was a that was a heck of a case. That was a high profile case for you. Uh, did you? I, I assume you came into contact with John Muhammad and then Lee Boyd Malvo. Yeah, very much so. So we, um, it was yeah, it was October second to the twenty second, I believe, of, of, of two thousand two. And and what was so scary about it was the randomness of it, and and sort of and the the wide swath of people that they killed, which we later learned they murdered people, you know, more than twenty people from Tacoma, Washington, all the way down through Arizona, Alabama, Georgia, and up into our area where they killed 10 people. I ran the Joint Sniper Task Force. I ran the legal side of it. And then, um, you know, you, it, and it was just an emotional uh, roller coaster. We were all up on that. We had 1,400 law enforcement officers working on, uh, on that case. And, and it, you know, surprise, it was actually surprisingly quick how, how fast we brought them in considering, um, you know, where, what kinds of crimes there were and um, the serial nature of it. And then, you know, it's funny you mentioned the, the bringing them in. You know, the yeah. night we – I remember the night we put the license plate in, it was just hours later that, that uh, someone saw them in a truck stop sleeping. Um, yeah. And so it was um, – yeah, no, it was pretty incredible. So then when they came in, we brought them into the, the juvenile center. So we wanted no one to know about it. We brought them in, in Montgomery County and – and, you know, they were both there that night. And then ultimately, through a machination of legal stuff, they ended up getting tried in Virginia, even though, the, you know, this was Montgomery County was the epicenter of the crimes, and the epicenter of the investigation. And, you know, we had six of our citizens murdered. But ultimately, we were able to try them in Montgomery County, which was ended up being incredibly important. In fact, recently, it was even more important when they were trying to, um, and, and I guess still are trying to get Lee Boy Malvo out, the younger boy. Um but yeah, I met them both. I spent an enormous amount of time with Malvo because by the time we got him, he was no longer sort of under the guise of Muhammad. And he came in, I'll tell you, I remember, for example, you know, he came into my office. Like he had written to us and wanted to meet with us. And we were interested in talking to him and sort of find out the how, what, and where and all the details for our case. And, and we actually had him in my office, my literal office as state wow. attorney. And I remember saying to him, um, you know, what do you say to guys? You know, mass murderers in jail. And I said, so what are you, how are you spending your time? He said, I read a lot. I said, what are you reading? And he said, um, The Fountainhead by Ann Rand. And we ended up having this long conversation about the Peter Keating and Howard Roark, the two main characters in the book. And 
And this guy was, you know, it's just yet another tragedy, this whole of the crime, because this kid was obviously very, very bright and um, just, you know, but also was looking through the scope of a rifle and murdering perfect strangers um, and many of them. And so it was, it was really, the whole thing was just tragic. And then, of course, Muhammad ended up being executed in Virginia. Yeah. And uh, I remember he that. Yeah, you know, he'll be in the jail for the rest of his life. Yeah. What was, and after all of going through the legal proceedings and to, to wrap our head around something as extraordinary as that event was, and I was a teenager at the time in high school, and, um, you know, to be honest, I was scared the hell out of me. And so, I mean, a lot of people here in Montgomery County, Doug, what was the motive behind that? What was what was the real intention for why they did what they did? It was just terrorism. So, you know, uh, Muhammad was this was a year after 9-11 and they wanted to wreak terror across the United States. And they did. Um, and it, it, that was sort of that was the whole motive. I mean, they made up stuff like there was this idea that, oh, he just wanted to get his wife, his ex-wife happened to live in this area. So he wanted to get her back. And then. In the middle of the thing, when it, got to, when it was getting an enormous amount of, of press attention, they sent a ransom note. They said they wanted money. I mean, but the, the true motive for the whole deal was sort of domestic terrorism, which we're seeing, yeah. obviously, in other places now. But that was, you know, in the wake of 9-11, that's what that was. Yeah, and, um, you know, it was later discovered, or at least that Malvo, he had claimed that he was sexually abused by um, Mohammed. And it just it just continues. I mean, is this guy ever going to see is Lee Boyd Malvo? Do you, I mean, he'll be in jail, like you said, for the rest of his life. There's no chance for parole. That's where he's going to live the rest of his life and eventually yes. die. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, wow. I mean, that's that's something that's 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 hope. That's just incredible. That story. I mean, we could we could take the entire show to talk about that. I just I remember the details. It was it was fascinating, and it was just a, another incident where innocent lives were taken for no particular reason, and it was a horrifying. <laughs> you know, I remember the gas stations had um, tarps up, so you know people would go yeah, in and no, get gas. it really was, and, and, and you know, and it just, and I remember they thought originally it was sort of you know white militant guy who lived in the sort of Wheaton area, Aspen Hill area, who. You know, had, had, was disgruntled or whatever, and it certainly ended up being the furthest thing from that. And you remember, there was some witness in one of the cases in Virginia that talked about seeing a white box truck kind of driving away. So they were stopping white box trucks all over the area, and of course, it wasn't a white box truck. I mean, it was very, the whole thing was just, uh, and technology wasn't then what it is today. And um, but they they brought all resources to bear to bring these guys in, and they were able to bring them in pretty quickly. So. Yeah. So then, and it was nice there was no copycat. Yeah, that's copycat cases, and there wasn't. Yeah. So then, in two thousand and six, you ran for you ran for governor, and then you were sworn in on January second. No, I ran for attorney general. I'm sorry. What am I thinking? (laughs) It's it's been a long day. I need some more coffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, No, no, no. Yeah. Ran for attorney general, which was interesting because no one had ever won um, any job statewide for Montgomery County. For over a hundred and something years, at the time wow. that, that I became attorney general, which is interesting because you know one fifth of the state lives in Montgomery County and a lot of power and influence in Montgomery County, yet we had never really we never won any position statewide. And now, if you look at it, you know so many of the statewide electives, you know Chris Van Hollen, uh, mm-hmm. Brian Frosch, Peter Francho, and so it's really been a sea change because so many people do live here. But at the time, it was sort of 
it was very novel and and um but anyway it worked out it worked out well did you have some opponents in that race when you ran oh yeah yeah i ran against um, a guy named Stu sims who was the baltimore county baltimore city state's attorney for uh, a number of years and it, um he had been it's a sort of a long story, but he was going to, he was the lieutenant governor candidate with Doug Duncan at the time when Doug Duncan was running for governor. Doug Duncan decided not to run for governor, and Stu Sims switched to run for attorney general. In addition, mm-hmm. Tom Perez, who's now the head of the Democratic Party uh, on the country, was was also a candidate. He had been on the Montgomery County Council. He was he also ran at the time, um, and so and then when I won that primary, I then ran against a guy named Scott Raleigh. Who is a judge in Frederick now? But oh, he, yeah. he was a state's attorney in, in Frederick County, so it was a pretty it was contentious in the primaries, contentious in the general election, um, and uh, you know I'm friends with all the people I ran against. Uh, we're all I, I come in contact with them all the all the time, and they're all very good people. And it's you know you you, you fight hard, and then at the end you sort of reconcile and and. Um, so that all worked out. That all worked out well. What was interesting, though, is at the time this is sort of when the shift for state attorneys general was happening. When state attorneys general started to run more for governor and U.S. Senate and stuff, so it, it was just much more competitive than, than previous AG races had been. Well, your tenure as in attorney general was nothing short of remarkable and incredible. And I want to highlight some of those issues. So. Um, one of those issues that I think that you were a true leader on was same-sex marriage. You were the first statewide elected official in Maryland to support marriage equality. That goes a long way. And then I remember when you had issued that legal opinion um, clarifying Maryland's ability to provide the full faith and credit to out-of-state same-sex marriages. So Maryland eventually um, took uh, same-sex marriage to the ballot. It was question six. We we won, um, and it was a it was a big deal. But I think that partially that was your leadership on that um, moved the needle. A lot of people were still uncomfortable at the time, and in fact, I remember sitting there yesterday. I heard Jamie Raskin speaking um, when he was in the state senate. Somebody had told him that Jamie just let this same-sex marriage thing go, and I think that empowered him more so to tackle this fight. And so I, that's, um, that was a, that was a major deal here in the state of Maryland, Doug. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate um, you remember that it was interesting. I mean, they literally, they started impeachment proceedings against me. I don't know if you remember that in 2010, after I wrote that opinion, recognizing out of state same sex marriages and it, um, and you know, Jamie Raskin, who I've known almost all my life, we've been very, very good friends. He was my campaign manager Actually, my campaign chairman when I was the state's attorney, and we go way back. Jamie wow. was on the state uh, judiciary committee down in Annapolis when I first went down there in 2007, and I didn't tell anybody I was going to do it. People were like, you know, you can't do that. You'll, 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 it'll hurt you politically. I'm like, you know, this is why you become attorney general to do the right thing and protect yeah. people and help people. And so I went down there and I said, and I, I, I got in front of the committee. I said, well, I assume I have all the Republicans and. On the committee on our side, because you know the Republicans are all for not letting this government dictate people's private lives, and people can contract to do whatever they want, leave the government out of it, and they're like, oh no, no, we can't, we can't have that. And but anyway, it was it was an interesting and look, it was the quickest social movement and change 
that we've ever seen in our history, going from, you know, sort of discriminating against people and not allowing people to marry who they love to, to, to allowing that. And it changed, you know, throughout the country and everybody, so many people played a part in it. And I was glad I was able to play a little part of it here in Maryland. With the impeachment proceedings, did you have anyone inside of your own party, inside the Democratic Party, who pushed for that, or was it primarily the Republicans? No, it was the the, Repub- the far right Republicans, not even <laughs> it was, yeah, it was just silly. Um, but you know, and, and like you, it's funny you mentioned that right when, uh, in your question. You know, it ultimately had actually, in my opinion, had less to do with marriage, due process, marriage equality, more to do with the full faith and credit clause, mm-hmm. you know, and, and just recognizing co- uh, valid contracts from out of state. It's not like if you drove to Maine tomorrow and your driver's license would be valid in each state along the way, you don't have to get a new driver's license in each state. And so um, that's sort of the premise of, of the opinion. Well, in, aside from the same sex marriage, you were attorney general in a time when social media was just coming to fruition and we didn't quite understand it and social media i really didn't start using facebook until i was a let's see a freshman in college 2005 um i didn't facebook was only at the time limited to college campuses and then of course it really expanded um over the next few years um you know people were using various social media um websites to 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 connect with one another but then i remember you had established um an internet safety initiative and you focused on school children and you shut down gossip sites uh bullying sites and um you helped eliminate the illegal adult services section on craigslist and uh that and back page yeah yeah back yeah i mean there's if if you dig into the underground internet, I mean, if you really go beneath the surface, you're going to find some sick stuff there. And it's some really bad stuff that encourages, empowers, and engages people that, that are sexual predators and who use those social networks to lure young victims. And so talk about that. That was a, that was a really powerful thing that you championed and pushed, Doug. Well, thanks. Yeah, no, when I was, um, I was actually elected president of all 50 attorneys general across the country and uh, the National Association of Attorneys General. And when you're the president, you have a year-long initiative or whatever it might be. And mine, I chose uh, to be privacy in the digital age. And so when I was attorney general, we actually were able to advance the cause of, of sort of privacy, protection, safety, on the internet um, across the country. And we're, we're able to sort of really start that dialogue on the state level. And my sort of credentials for doing that was, as you mentioned before that, starting the first internet crime unit safety unit, both when I was state's attorney in Montgomery County, then when I was attorney general in Maryland, you know, and there's so much to it. I mean, there's the, the bullying, the, the, you know, bullying part of it. There's um, protecting kids from online predators. There's, um, there's a lot of co- even like copyright something, sales of companies, fake stuff being sold on the internet to, to people, pharmaceuticals that could kill you on the internet. I mean, just, just like you said, there's a huge, there's a very dark underbelly. On the, on the other hand, it's you know, it's great. I mean, I've taught my 83 year old mother how to use Uber. You know, I mean, it's it's just mm. a wonderful, powerful 
uh, tool to have the internet and, and all and all that comes with it, but you have to be mindful of the, of the dark side of it as well. Oh, sure. And you, you, when you were attorney general, um, you were mindful too of of the environment. You did a lot of work on the Chesapeake Bay. Um, you, you you worked a little bit with the Susquehanna River, and you I remember you conducted that audit. Um, of the Bay's tributaries, and you yeah, kind of we identif- River audits, yeah, yeah. Um, and look, the Chesapeake Bay. Growing up in Maryland, I grew up in Western Maryland, and uh, that was a, a real gym. Uh, we would go down and spend time on the bay, go fishing, do I mean the whole lot. I mean that's such an important part of Maryland's narrative, the Chesapeake Bay, and we have to have leadership where people work to protect it. And so you did that, Doug. You really went out on a limb on some of these instances, and you made the Chesapeake Bay a high priority. Um, could you speak a little bit more to that? Yeah, no, it's it, it's a real. It was sort of my top. If you had to identify top priority, it was, that was my that was it. Because I thought that to your point, I mean, the Chesapeake Bay is really the crown jewel of our state. It's, it's what people know, well, across the country and across the world. They know about the Chesapeake Bay, and it had been going down and down, declining, and the grades they gave it, Ds, Es, Fs, whatever. Um, and it's really not, it's, it's, as a political issue, it's not a great issue. And, and because it doesn't pull well, and you can't just sort of snap your fingers and all of a sudden it's better. So we really spent, you know, eight years prosecuting polluters, working on changing the laws, whether it was getting you know, phosphates out of dishwasher detergent or um, you know, you know, every year we had a, a legislative initiative that was all of which passed except for one. And um, you know, we we did on the legislative side, on the enforcement side, on the education side. We did those 22 river audits. We went to every sort of river and tributary around the state and worked with them to figure out you know what needed to be done. Work with the watermen. Work with the river keepers, and you know, and try to work with business because. You know, on, on the other hand, it's also tourism. You know, the Chesapeake Bay provides tourism. It's oysters, it's crabs, and sure. work with the watermen. And so there's a lot to it. And, you know, it was actually – we started seeing real progress in the last few years. It, it, you know, again, as a result of a lot of people working on it. We like to think that we had a little part of that too. And so it's kind of sad to see that, that being pulled back a little bit now, which that's really unfortunate. Yeah. Um, so, you know, another thing that you did was you fought against mortgage fraud. That's a big deal. And people who are homeowners, first time homeowners, um, you recovered, was it a nearly a billion dollars in relief assistance for Maryland homeowners? You, you went after that. You were aggressive and taking on some of these predatory lenders. And that's a big deal these days. Uh, people may not realize it, but that, that's a really big deal. Um, and, and, and well, in the state of deal. Yeah, it was a big deal then, and it's still a big deal now in the sense that um, – not that that's happening now, but the, the rules that we put in place as a result of that, that actually uh, all happened. The, the North, uh, National Mortgage Foreclosure Settlement happened when I was president of NAG, of the 50 AG. So we, we ended up going against the five major banks in the country, and it was at the time a $26 billion settlement. It ended up being more like $32 billion. We had over $1.2 billion uh, into Maryland to help – in terms of, uh, to help folks that were uh, being foreclosed upon in terms of principal reduction, basically be able to stay in their homes. Um, we also used some of the money for community development and so forth. And it really it, it helped so many people be able to stay in their homes and pay off their mortgages and get get a fair shake. But 
the reason why it's still there today is because we changed the servicing standards, the way in which right. people are able to buy or not buy homes, and, and hopefully you know, we won't ever see anything like that again. Doug, you were attorney general when one of the worst incidents occurred in American history, and that was during Sandy Hook. Um, I, I still remember where I was. I think most of us do. It's um, I, I, I don't. It's hard to compare to another major incident in my life, but I mean, we we all seem to remember where we were on 9/11. I remember I was in my Washington D.C. office in Chinatown when Sandy Hook was happening in real time and when the news first broke. And then Maryland went on to pass arguably some of the toughest gun laws in America. Could you talk a little bit about your role and some of that legislation and how you interpreted um, how at the time Maryland's laws could be strengthened to um, to protect us from another incident like Sandy Hook occurring in one of our Maryland elementary schools? Yeah, I mean, look, gun control it, to me is is just that, and we need to control the amount of guns. I mean, I I've never understood, and and you know, to your point, we I did obviously testified on behalf of a lot of the bills, and we did a lot of legal interpretation, and uh, you know, we did a, um, an enormous amount of education regarding firearms. But to me, it's been a it's a strange issue because it's it's so polarizing, and it's some people have the single vote on it, a lot of people do. And it, it, to me, it just makes no sense. I mean, everybody – well, not everybody. Most people agree that we shouldn't be able to walk into a store and buy a bazooka or you shouldn't be able right. to drive down, you know, 355 in, in, a, in a tank and, you know, or buy, be able to buy grenades. And, and the same people – and most people think, you know what, if you want to have a handgun to protect your family or a shotgun to protect your family in your home, you should be able to do that. If you're a hunter, you should be able to do that, a target practice. And so there's a real middle ground there, and we never look for the middle ground. And it seems to me that we, we kind of are both passing the night on that. And because th- those kind of events, Sandy Hook and more recently Las Vegas, and this is, you know, you can go countless events like that, mm-hmm. um, shouldn't happen and, and don't need to happen. And so there's, it seems to me there's a real middle ground that we ought to be trying to, to, to reach. We do have very stringent gun laws in, in Maryland because people want them, and that's, how, that's why they were passed. Um, but it's also the enforcement is an important part of it. And, um, you know, I think, I think people are, are fine with where we are right now. Well, I think some, there's, there's many, I have many friends in, the, in who are Republicans or rather on, on the right in the state of Maryland who believe that SB 281 had, had gone too far and has gone too far. And they're, even critical of Governor Hogan for not doing more work on what they think should be concealed carry, Maryland State Police work. And there are Republicans out there now who have openly vowed not to support Governor Hogan in the next election or in the primary, at least, because he hasn't done enough on um, gun legislation or hasn't promoted concealed carry. What do you what do you what's your take on that? Well, first of all, nothing would get you know the legislature is still heavily democratic, and and people the idea of, of people walking around with guns all over the place um, in in their pockets and concealed carries is is probably not going to happen anytime soon in, in the state of Maryland. So, um, you know whether Governor Hogan wants to do something about it or not. I mean, you know we may or may not find out in the second term if you have second term, but it's um, it's not realistic to think that that. Anything's going to get done on that in, in, in this. This is a very, very democratic state and very uh, much against the proliferation of guns. I mean, right. people just don't need automatic weapons. 
They don't need semi-automatic weapons. And, and there's nothing in the Constitution that says you get to have an automatic weapon. Um, and so, you know, that, those are real issues. And, and, you know, people are always going to be critical of legislators and, and Governor Hogan for doing this or that and, or the, the Democratic legislatures for doing this or that. But the fact of the matter is the Sandy Hooks and, and these kind of events do happen, and they shouldn't happen. If people want to have a gun, and, and where the Supreme Court is right now basically says, look, if you want to have a gun, in the Heller case, if you want to have a gun in your house to protect your family um, for self-defense reasons, you should be able to have that. And that's what the Second Amendment provides. And that's where they yeah. are right now with this, in the Supreme Court. And people say, well, it's a, it's a, it's, well, the Second Amendment gives me a right to you know, have an automatic rifle. It just doesn't. It's not, <laughs> it may, may be interpreted that way somebody down the road, but the Founding Fathers weren't all about that. And the Supreme Court today still hasn't said that that's what it's about. Right. Um, Doug, when people think of the, the Attorney General's office in Maryland, um, you know, people still think, and, and it's it's accurate that you pick up the phone if you have some sort of consumer fraud issue, uh, anything to do with a, a ruling on a, on a a Maryland court, they would pick up and they would call someone within the Attorney General's office. But Doug, when you were there for for those eight years, just walk us through an average day of what um, what your job entailed. Well, the great thing about the job is there was no average day. So every day you get in. And you, you didn't know what the event was going to be of the day, what, what sort of um, what issues you're going to work on. But, I mean, I, you hit the nail on the head, though, in one regard, which is that every attorney general, all 50 of them, whether you're Democrat, Republican, red state, blue state, whatever, the, the meat of the, of the office is a consumer protection division. And so protecting consumers from fraud, from you know, abuse, from – Whatever the, the issue might be is what, why the, the uh, attorneys general offices are there. And so, you know, and, and a lot of those cases uh, become bigger. We talked to the National Mortgage Foreclosure case. You know, right now opioids is a big uh, issue. Um, you know, there's a lot of different sort of multi-states. We work with other states on cases. And, uh, and you, you, but you, so you have, we had 467 lawyers and about 700 people in the office. So, Different people are always working on different stuff each day, and all of it seemed, to me at least, very interesting at the time. Yeah, I I think your your work would be would be fascinating um, to to do that. And uh, you know, I want to I want to move into another section of of this interview. So back in uh, you decided to run for governor. Um, back in 2013, in, in fact, you announced um, in September of 2013 you said you were you were running and um walked us through the decision on how you arrived that you wanted to be governor well i've been attorney i've been state's attorney for eight years i've been attorney general for eight years i don't i don't think people should stay at uh, jobs too long and and i i felt i made a difference um in both of those positions and um you know really enjoyed it and and really sort of changed the offices i i'd taken over and I thought um, we'd done some really great stuff, and I thought that I could take that to the next level and do some things in, in, as governor. I mean, I, I mentioned I started that inner city lacrosse league, for example, in Baltimore, and I had these wonderful right. kids, that, five, six, seven-year-old kids that show up on Saturday mornings for the lacrosse clinic from the inner city, and then they Monday morning they go off to 
a school and no one's going to teach them how to read, much less, you know, can they go to Harvard, you know, and then people are trying to figure out why, why people are shooting each other and doing drugs in the streets. Well, you didn't teach them how to read when they were little. So there's a lot I really wanted to do as governor, and I thought I could do a good job at it. I tend to, um, you know, try and hire the best and the brightest, and so I ran. And uh, we were very, very well positioned. Um, and But then uh, th- there were a lot of folks that wanted uh, to see the lieutenant governor, Anthony Brown, become governor, and, and he had a lot of support. And um, he ended up beating me in the primary and then losing to Governor Hogan in the general election. And, and I, you know, ended my 22 years of government service and now, you know, enjoying my life in the private sector. Right. And, and so you know, when you ran for governor, um, they threw a lot of crap at you. And I don't think that there's any way better to say it other than they threw a lot of junk at you. And I think you made some really great decisions running for governor. And the, one of the best decisions you made was picking Jolene Ivey. She's such a dynamite person. And I, I had her on the show last month and she's, she's a pretty cool person. And I think you made the right choice and it would be great to have, a woman as a governor someday, lieutenant governor. And um, I, I just think that that choice was so good because she brought a lot of dynamite to that ticket and a lot of spunk. Um, and I, I think she's a remarkable person. Yeah, she is. And, and you know, she started Mocha Moms, which is a really neat nonprofit. And she is, as you noted and you saw, she has a ton of energy and she really worked hard for us. And I had known her a number of ways, but her husband, Glenn, and I worked together at the U.S. Attorney's Office, and we continued to see each other and work with each other, and uh, he'd been a state's attorney in, in Prince George's, and she was the head of Prince George's County Delegation, you know, dynamic family, great kids, um, and she's a great woman, and, and so, yeah, no, but I, it's funny you say that, because, yeah, you know, when you do run against the establishment, which we were doing, um, they throw, as you said, a lot of crap at you. I remember one of them, I woke up one day. Um, and on the front page of the Washington Post, there was a guy named John Wagner who would just yeah. write stuff for the Post. He just made things up every day, and for whatever oh. reason, they just haven't fired fired him yet. And and he his his thing he wanted to make up that day was that I was like telling state troopers to run over kids on the sidewalk or something ridiculous. You know, I've been in law enforcement for 22 years, and you read this, thing. and of course they called the troopers that actually drove me. They're like, "Are you kidding? Of course, that, that's the most ridiculous thing in the world." And by the way we don't work for our protectees, we work for the state police. No one's ever going to do stupid things like that and whatever. It was, it was completely, it was a hocus pocus, but they released it on the day that I was announcing that Jolene was my Lieutenant governor because they, they, they wanted to do that. And, you know, and, and she was, she was a trooper. So she fought through all that. She saw it for what it was, you know, you go against the establishment and they have a guy like Wagner for the post. They're going to be able to do what they want. And um, so it was a, you know, it was a tough campaign, but that's, Politics is tough. That's why, you know, and a lot of people don't get into it for that. You know, a lot of people don't want to see, you know, just have stuff written about them, made up about them, and um, speculated about them. And it's not that it's fake news, but it's just some of them, it's just unbelievable stuff. And you end up getting sort of watered-down quality of folks that want to get into politics, and it's really unfortunate. I mean, you mentioned social media before. That's part of it, too. I mean, people, you know, people make – anybody can say anything. So you get lives and – well, Doug and they they really I mean they hit you with some stuff and you mentioned the the, the, the state trooper issue. Um and you know, it became known as what, Trooper Gate and they basically yeah. said that you had 
ordered state troopers to speed while driving to routine appointments and to drive on the side of the streets. And I think there was even an article where they said um, you were, I guess, driving the state police vehicle yourself or going through the tunnels and you like passed O'Malley's troopers. At one. I mean, what is what 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 happened there? I mean, when this broke, what what were you thinking about all this stuff? Well, I mean, I wanted to just say, which was the truth, that I've never ordered a trooper. I mean, you know, I, I'm the most, pro, most pro-law enforcement guy there is. I was prosecutor for 22 years. I love the, the police. And, and I wanted to say two things, really. I wanted to say, first of all, I've never ordered a trooper or any officer to do anything but, you know, go to the bathroom or anything else in my entire life. So it was, you know, just ridiculous. And, and, and sort of, I said, well, who made this up? Oh, the guy who worked in O'Malley's, and in Momali's house wrote this thing, you know, Momali obviously was supporting Brown. And I was like, well, what's that say? And it was kind of crazy. But, and the second thing was that really bothered me about it. I mean, look, I get it. They're going to make up stuff. They're going to come up with things yeah. like that. Um, but the second thing that really bothered me about it is that I don't still think st- the state police should ever be brought into politics. I mean, these guys are out there. They're making not much money. They're putting their lives on the line every day to protect us. And to to drag them in to make up your story using the state police um, was just you know very very unfortunate. And so were the troopers yeah, Doug? Were the troopers ever named in that report? I know I read the article. No, were there no, ever any sourced? I mean, yeah. No, no. I mean, they called the guy when we first heard about. It, I said, "What call? Here's the names of the troopers that drove me." So they called the guy that drove me for five years. They drove they called the guy for two years. They, no, it's never happened. He couldn't be a nicer guy. We've never enjoyed working with someone more. Never bust our chops. Doesn't make us work on the holidays. And, you know, he never did any of this, and he couldn't do any of that, and we wouldn't listen to him anyway. I mean, just the whole thing was just, you know, crazy. And, but this, you know, look, that's, again, that's, that's part of politics. I mean, and so, you know, and, and it was interesting. So in the first part of the show, we talked about all the things that, that I'd done as attorney general, as I'd done as state's attorney, as I'd done as as assistant United States attorney. And then they're, they're able to sort of put that stuff in the newspaper. Um, You know, people think it's true, which is, you know, or did at the time. And, you know, they sort of got it. It was politics and there was never, it never really got followed up on because it was nothing, it wasn't true, but it was still in in the Washington post. And so that was, you know, that's unfortunate, but it's part of the, you you do all these things and that that's what they, they, they choose to put in the paper when you're running. I mean, Doug, if, if something lands on the, the metro section or even the A section of the Washington Post, it becomes a big deal for, for Maryland. I mean, Washington Post is America's newspaper, I would argue. I mean, maybe USA Today, but it's, it's a major <laughs> newspaper. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a major newspaper. And, um, you know, you mentioned Martin O'Malley. Do you, do you have a good relationship with him th- these days or what's, what's, what's going on with yeah. that? That's yeah, good. I mean, I was his lawyer for eight years, and you know, that when yeah. I was attorney general, the attorney general was the, the governor's lawyer. And we got along great, and you know, we got and and uh, I ran into him, you know, recently, and we have a we have a very good relationship. Um, you know, I think he he thought it was important to uh, support his lieutenant governor. Um, I knew that that wasn't a good idea. I knew he, you know, obviously that that, that was going to be a difficult thing for him, but he did it, and he supported his lieutenant governor and. And of course, I was running against the lieutenant governor, so yeah, he was on the other side of that. But again, you know, you just ha- you have to if you're gonna if you're going to engage in politics, you have to understand that these things happen and that people take sides. And at the end of the campaign, you know, um, look, I w- I would have won. Be the the Hogan's people said that we that they had 
me polled as beating him by 20 some odd points, but that they were, they had them beating Brown by two or three points right after the primary. And so, you know, any Democrat would have, would have uh, beaten Hogan and we would have a Democrat now. So, but that's all in the past. And, um, and I understood why, why the governor support the governor supports Lieutenant governor. You got to support your Lieutenant governor. I get that. So, well, there's, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that I still don't quite understand about that race. And here's one of those issues. When you were, you know, look, we talked about same-sex marriage. And then when you ran for governor, Doug, Equality Maryland, I remember, endorsed Anthony Brown. When you were, you know, recognized as the first state, led, or, you know, the first state official to support same-sex marriage, it was, it was a bit unconscionable that Equality Maryland, I mean, look, if they endorsed Heather Mizer, okay, I, I would get that, and I think we all understand why. But why would they endorse Anthony Brown over you for that? I mean, was it because they thought that he was going to win? Is it, it doesn't make any sense. Well, he, he, he did come out for marriage equality at some point, I think during the election anyway. Um, so he was certainly on record, I think, as being for it, uh, you know, after it all passed and all that. And um, so they could sort of justify it that way. I mean, look, the Sierra Club and fine. I mean, I was, I was the environmental attorney general across the country, and, and the Sierra Club and environmental groups d- didn't endorse me. I mean, you know, I had a lot of endorsements, um, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's a pretty – there's a lot of uh, – when the establishment is for something, it is very difficult to, 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 to push back against it. And, you know, the establishment had people like Quality Maryland and other groups – endorse Anthony and yeah, he's a good guy and he's now a congressman and he's serving, you know, he served our country and now he's serving in Congress and, and all that. But you know, he, um, so, but he was the establishment candidate in that particular race and the establishment candidate gets, gets the support. I mean, it'll be interesting to see sort of who ends up being the establishment candidate in this race uh, for governor for the I Democrats. I don't think there is one. Yeah. I think it's a little unclear, you know, um, but we'll see how that all plays out. But it, yeah, there certainly isn't one like there was, I mean, the, the two times we that the Democrats lost, um, the, the establishment was behind the, those two candidates, lock, stock, and barrel, and they both lost. That's when we got right. Governor Ehrlich and then we got Governor Hogan. You know, when you – during the, the course of the campaign, and I think one of the, um, one of the other interesting aspects is that you – you were recorded at this meeting with these volunteers saying that, you know, Brown – vote for me. I want to be the first African-American governor of Maryland. And that was, you said that was his slogan. I don't think, you know, it's sort of surreptitious and duplicitous to record somebody at a, at a meeting just for political purposes. And I, I'm not, I don't well, agree with that. Felony, but yeah, a felony, I mean, I, but keep going. <laughs> no, I mean, look, no, I just, so that, that I, I think interesting thing. So I started the first civil rights department in the history of Maryland. I, I ran Barack Obama's campaign when everybody else was with Hillary Clinton. At that very meeting that was that was taped by the Brown campaign worker, um, you know, a felony, uh, as I mentioned, um, the, my civil rights chair and head was in the room. Was, the room was about a third African-American, and, and they ended up sort of backtracking on that. I mean, that was Wagner wrote that story, and he obviously put out – the, he, he sort of neglected to put the second part of it. I said, in, in the, you know, I said that Anthony Brown was running to be the first African-American pre, uh, governor in Maryland, which is very laudable, 
but you need more than that. You need to say, what is your vision right. for the African-American community? What have you done for the African-American community? And so it was all in there. And, of course, once they listened to the actual full tape, um, they said, well, you actually you weren't saying anything that was inappropriate on that, but you were disrespecting his army service as if, you know, he, the only reason why he thinks he should be governor is because he's African-American and not because he, you know, was a lawyer and JAG or whatever. Right. And I mean, the whole thing was just silly. Um, but that's, but that, to your point, that's what happens when you run and they put Politics. stuff like that in the paper. Yeah. 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 And you know, the other issue that was in the paper that I think, it, you know, I, I look at, it, I think it, that, it, that it hurts you um, in a way, I mean, we all remember that famous picture of you in that white button-down shirt holding that black iPhone yeah. out at the at the uh, over in Delaware when you know I think your son was over yeah. there having a having a party. And you know, walk us through that because they they want to classify it as a scandal, but you know, I don't think you ever really got to go in grave in great detail about what happened. And I think that there was hypocrisy on the other side too from political opponents and maybe just maybe, and hear me out. I think that some of the people who were throwing mud at you, um, didn't take them. And and look, you were running for governor. You're the state's attorney general. I get it, but you're also there as a parent too. And I'm not, you know, I'm not taking a position either way, but I think there was a whole lot more to what was just reported, Doug. Well, yeah, I mean, look, it, it, but you just made the, 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 the whole point, which is, yes, these were college kids drinking beer on vacation at the beach. That college kids do drink beer on, on, you know, in Delaware or whatever. And I went in to check on my son, you know, because he was going back to college the next morning. I was going to tell him what, what time we're leaving. I went out for three or four minutes. Yes, I was in my white suit. I'd just been at a work dinner. Um, and I didn't know where he was, so we were texting to try and figure out. And it turns out he was a DJ. He wasn't even drinking at that, that particular party. But um, that all said, I went in there as a parent, like any parent would do to sort of check on their son um, to make sure what's going on. But I should have been in there as the attorney general. There's nothing we could have done. I mean, you know, it would have been different. I mean, these were, uh, there was no one driving. There's no one, no one was allowed to drive. These were, you know, a bunch of kids in a party, you know, having beer at the beach. But that said, you know, I should have been more aware of the fact that I was attorney general, not just a parent, but you know, and, and I think it got a lot of attention for a number of reasons. One of the reasons why it gets a lot of attention is because people don't know how to handle that. You know, what do you do um, when you go in? I mean, these kids were college kids, but, you know, a lot of 13, 14, 15-year-old kids, you know, having a party and someone drinks beer and a parent comes in. I mean, how do you handle it? And uh, so it got a lot of it sort of got a lot of attention for that regard uh, as well. But, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, and Wagner, Wagner sort of embellished that story pretty heavily and, put other, you know, put some things that he knew weren't true in there. And so it got a lot of, you know, that, that story had legs. And I think it had legs for two reasons. One, because people sort of, you know, sort of see themselves in that same position. How do you, how do you balance being a parent with, you know, sort of your professional life? And, and, and second, because there's a picture, you know, right. and, and that, there's a picture of, of, of me looking for, for my son. And, uh, well, you know, now he's working for an Elon Musk company in LA and, Graduated from an Ivy League school with a 3.8 average. I think he worked out okay. Yeah, and you walk into one of those situations as as a parent, and I haven't experienced that yet. And I'm sure that down the road somewhere, something like that is going to happen. Where you know we, and and people who my age is a, is a young parent, we're none of us are going to deny the reality. I was there too, Doug, when I was a kid. We all had I had parties where my 
my dad, my stepdad came in and, and just busted us, chewed us out and said, don't do this again. You guys are idiots. And, you know, we had cases of beer. We drank underage. And it's just, I'm not condoning it. I was in a college fraternity. Um, I've been through it. We, it's not right. Uh, and, but the reality is that these things happen. I just don't know exactly what people had expected you to do just to walk in and shut down the music and say, I'm Doug Gansworth, the Attorney General of Maryland, and I'm here to tell all of you to get out and, you know, you got to – I just – it wouldn't have worked out Inclu- that well. It, including the four chaperones that were standing there and the four parents that were actually in the picture that were right. inside. I mean, these these kids, um, you know, they had a different – they had 24-hour parents at – there was actually sta- – I wasn't one of the chaperones, but they were there were chaperones – of, of the parent, the parents that were there every night, and making sure nothing, you know, nothing was happening to anybody. That no, no one was sort of leaving or getting drunk, or anybody was in danger or anything like that. They were, you know, college kids drinking beer at, 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 in Delaware at the beach. And um, yeah, I mean, what? I, who knows? I mean, they I, I, obviously the, the sort of the general sentiment was, I should have done something different than I did, I'm, and maybe I should have. Um, I just don't know what that would have been. Well, how do you think that yeah. story got leaked? Oh, it was, you know, one of the kids had um, uh, put some of the videos from the party up on something called Vine, which I don't even oh, know yeah. exists anymore, but the time it did. And uh, Anthony Brown's, um, you know, campaign workers saw it and sent it to their, their guy Wagner at the Post and got it on there. Well, I'll tell you what, it's become a popular uh, occurrence within Democratic Party circles where even Democratic candidates these days – are criticizing the way in which Anthony Brown has run had run his 2014 gubernatorial campaign. And Doug, I'll give you an example. During a gubernatorial forum uh, in Silver Spring last Monday, uh, Rich Madalino said, "Look, you know, here's a good guy. It was an incredibly good guy, but ran a awful campaign. Um, and yeah. you know, you you said it best um, that you may have beaten. You could have." Beaten Governor Hogan at the time, and when you lost, I'm sure you're thinking, you know, you go, you Monday morning quarterback, everything. I mean, something as big as a governor's race, I'm sure it, it wears on your mind. But, um, you, you know, when you, you look at that race, um, and not to, to drag up that, but can that be avoided this time? Can Democrats learn from what happened with Anthony Brown's race, which a lot of things went wrong, seemingly. And uh, look, having... Yeah. I think I mean, I think he's that he's a smart quality guy and, and and what happens is I think is when anybody loses people always say, Well, it's bad the guy ran a bad campaign or the woman ran a bad campaign. I mean sometimes you just you lose for whatever reason. And Rich Rich is great. Rich was one of my big Madalino, as you mentioned, was one of my big supporters in my in my race. Um mm-hmm. but you know, and I think people, you know, uh, were were upset with the way the campaign was run. There was definitely um some issues with the camp, the way the campaign was run on both sides. I mean, it was very, the primary was very negative and that sort of carried over. We'll see how negative this one gets um, with the Democrats and, you know, how that will affect them. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, but it's easy to second guess a lot of yeah. stuff. And, you know, people ask me, is. people ask me, you know, when, when they were thinking I was going to run this time, they're like, well, what would you do different? And I was like, I could take every five minutes of my last campaign and tell you what I do differently um, but, you know, it's, it's contextual. Each race is different and each the time's different. And you kind of, I think the fact of having run before makes you just a better candidate, but it's, uh, it's, you know, it's easy to second guess campaign. Well, you're sending, 
you're setting 2018 out. You said back in September that you know, look, you're you're in the private sector, and um, but but Doug, you have more name recognition than any of the candidates that are currently running. And 44% of Democrats, according to the latest Goucher poll, are undecided. And I think the field is wide open now. If you you did happen to jump in to this race, I think you would become an instant front runner. You're you're tested. You're you're battle ready. You're ready to go. You know Maryland better than anybody. Um, why did you sit this one out? Well, and and you know we were ahead in our polling. We were ahead by 28 percent um, over the next over this field. And though at the time I was also behind Governor Hogan, um, closest by the you know obviously but best position to run against Governor Hogan, but still uh, it would be difficult to weed. But so on the political side. You know, um, sort of looking at that because you started with the polling. Um, you know, it's, he's he, the governor's very popular. He's seventy-three percent favorable rating. He's going to have twenty-five million dollars. He's an incumbent, and he doesn't have a primary. And the Democrats um, have not. You know, Democrats are having a free-for-all. They're saying, "All right, you, <laughs> you ten or eleven people, go run against each other, beat each other up, um, and whoever comes out in June will support you." And that's that's not a very uh, positive scenario, I think, on the political side. And the personal side, I mean, I did 22 years of, of government, um, you know, eight, eight as the state's attorney in the biggest jurisdiction, Montgomery County, eight statewide. I feel like, you know, at least my mother would think I, we did a lot of good stuff and got a lot of, it helped a lot of people. We brought over $2 billion back into the state of Maryland through the attorney generals and put a lot of bad people in crime, you know, jail, like, Arguing from the Supreme Court, one nine nothing. I mean, done a lot of really cool, fun things, and help. And I get my moral currency from helping people. That's just who I am. But on the other hand, you know, I'm enjoying what I'm doing now, and I'll take a look at it down the road. But for right now, it just didn't make sense on a personal and professional level to to run this time. Yeah. Um, are there any candidates right now who stand out to you that you think that could really go the distance? Well, I think they're all. There's a lot of really good, in, interesting candidates. I mean, there's a bunch of them who sort of woke up one morning, were shaving, and looked in the mirror and said, "I see a governor in the mirror." You know, and then looking at this <laughs> as sort of governor's a governor's a starter job. Um, that's sort of an interesting proposal. And then there's uh, some some other you know sort of quality folks that are in the race. I mean, you mentioned Rich Madalino, for example. You know, he's a great guy and has done a great job as a state senator and really smart and thoughtful and there's a lot of good people and they have a lot, you know, all of them have a lot to offer. Um, it's a little unclear who's going to win and who would be the most effective to run against the governor. Um, but, you know, uh, so we'll see, you know, right now I'm just sort of observing it and seeing how it happens, but I, I don't know. No one sort of jumped out from the crowd at this point in terms of being a front runner. We have two traditional, more establishment types like uh, Rasharn and Kevin Kamenitz, who are county executives of major uh, Maryland counties, Prince George's and Baltimore, respectively. Um, and then you had a new person whom I don't know, Dr. Uh, Dr. Cummings, uh, who is uh, Maya Rockamora Cummings, who is Elijah Cummings' spouse. I, I don't know anything about her, and she is uh, recently announced this past Thursday that she is running for governor. And then you have um, a tech entrepreneur, Alec Ross from Baltimore city. And then you have Krishante Vignaraja who served um, in the Obama administration as Michelle Obama's policy director. Um, and then Ben Jealous from Baltimore city, 
who was the former NAACP um, uh, president, um, and then Jim Shea, who was a, a lawyer with Venerable. So I don't know if I'm missing anybody, um, but <laughs> you know the guy next door. I mean, every, yeah. there's a lot of people running, <laughs> you know, and uh, and 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 really not. I mean, a couple of them have you mentioned. Cabinets and Baker, they sort of have their own base, if you will, in their county, um, but, you know, not, not 100% support for either one of them in their own county, but they're both, you know, very accomplished, well-thought-of people, and, and you know, Jim Shea, you mentioned, you know, is a venerable venerable lawyer from Venable, and he's, uh, you know, very well-thought-of in the legal community, Alec Ross, you know, is a tech guy, he's young, and, you know, I haven't met him yet, but he seems, you know, a lot of people think he's pretty competent, and you know, there's there, there's a lot of good people, and and it's gonna in my Rocky Moore you mentioned just got in, and you know she's the only woman uh, that's at least at this point that's qualified to run, and so it'll be interesting to see how it all turns out. But it's uh, it's not gonna be easy because they're gonna have to, you know, stand out, win the primary, and then turn around a few months later, and run against uh, you know a very popular governor. Yeah, it's it, you know they're. God bless them all for for putting their policies out there. And they're, I was at a forum yesterday in uh, Montgomery County's Germantown um, or uh, Montgomery College campus, and they are they're knocking Hogan left and right, and that's fine. It's policy, and they're they're hitting him over the head for for his term. And I get it. Um, I think that it's going to be a race to watch because while. Governor Hogan is popular. It's still Maryland. It's a Democratic state. And with Donald Trump um, going into his second year as president, um, they're going to try to hang that around Governor Hogan, that he hasn't done enough, hasn't stood up to Trump enough. And look, I don't think that I think that Hogan deep down probably and he won't say this publicly because he still has a base in the Republican Party. But I'm sure that Governor Hogan would prefer anybody but Donald Trump to be president at this well, time. Well, anybody and, would prefer not to have a mentally ill, narcissistic, egomaniac as president. I mean, that's oh, I agree for with sure. You. Um, oh, yeah. And, and I'm sure Governor Hogan feels the same way. But it's hard. look, it's very difficult to be a rational, reasonable Republican today. You don't know what to do with Trump. You know, do you do you sort of embrace him? Do you keep your distance from him? Do you ignore him? I mean, it's hard. You know, and and I think the Democrats have it pretty easy. They got you know this guy. He's he's a bad guy, and he's our president, and it's not good. Yeah, I mean, with most presidents, you could look at them and say, okay, some of them have their flaws in policy, or there's one or two character flaws that, um, but totally redeemable. And I look at most politicians like that. There's a lot of people for whom I disagree with on policy, but there's just something that is truly redeemable about most people that you say, wow, it's a good guy. He's a nice. Yeah, there's there's but with with Donald Trump, I feel like there's truly nothing redeemable about him. I don't get anything. I, I feel nothing. It's it's a dead hollow center um, for someone who is so fundamentally unfit to lead our country, and it scares the hell out of me, Doug. It really does. I'm I'm every it's day. Sad. I'm, it's sad. Yeah, I mean, here's you know, it's, it's, I think he's an amoral goofball that, as a sign of the times, he was elected. People were so frustrated with Hillary Clinton. And look, I know you got on board with President Obama back in 2008, and President Obama had two two terms as as president. And then you look at this, like how can we go from President Obama, who 
um, you know, was a pretty decent president in, in most respects. And I'll get a lot of pushback from the right on that. But then we go from this guy. Yeah, you know, but when they push back, they can't tell you why. <laughs> <laughs> they can't give you a reason why. It was, I mean, everything, you know, we weren't attacked for eight years. It was never a scandal. The economy, you know, got up to 20-something thousand. I mean, you, you name it, it went well when he was, when he was president. And they, but they say, oh, we, but he was a bad president. You're like, okay, give me, tell me one thing he did that wasn't good. You know, and they can't, they can't come up with one thing, let alone you know, eight years of positive accomplishments. It's, kind of, it's, it's yeah. interesting. So, Doug, just wrapping up, the, with the gubernatorial race upcoming, do you see any standout individuals in state government or around Maryland who would make a fantastic LG to some of these candidates? Is there any names that you could rattle off at the, on, on the top of your, the tip of your tongue here? Well, we have a lot. I mean, you know, we have a lot of great politicians. The, the, the bench is deep. I mean, the Democratic Party really has a very deep bench in my view. Um, if you look at the folks in Annapolis and, you know, there, there's going to be a, a as there always is when you're looking for a lieutenant governor, there's going to be sort of a geographic uh, vision. There's going to be a demographic vision. You can imagine, you know, having a woman uh, lieutenant governor candidate. I mean, I tried that. No one else, no one else has in the Democratic Party. Um, well, Glenn Denning did with, with Kathleen Townsend, but, it, you know, they didn't last time. It's, it's, so you can see some of that. The other thing you're going to probably see with so many candidates in the race would be the, the, the possibility of, them coming together as a team. So you can imagine, you know, a, a cabinet's Baker ticket or, you know, what, what or my rocking or my, you know, be somebody's uh, team up with somebody who knows, you know, there's a lot of different mm-hmm. permutation and combinations, but no one sort of jumps out as an obvious candidate for anybody else at this point. Well, I'll give you a name. Um, I think Cheryl Kagan's going to be picked up by somebody. Well, Cheryl will be, is, will be very attractive. First of all, she, you know, considered or people considered for her running for county executive. I think she would have been an extremely strong candidate for county executive. In fact, with the current field, uh, I thought she would have won uh, the county executive race if, if she had run. Um, so she'll definitely get approached and asked to be uh, lieutenant governor for, for one or more candidates. Whether she takes it or not, you know, I think she truly enjoys being a state senator and, and doing you know, the work she does there and whether she wants to give that up um, to run for lieutenant governor because you have to do, give up your seat, you know, will be a decision she'll have to make depending on, you know, the circumstances at the time and the likelihood that whoever asks her to be lieutenant governor, you know, has a chance of winning. So I mean, you have to well, run this ticket, remember? Oh, yeah. It's, it's and, a, and, of course, it, she would have to yeah, give so up it's her. tough. Yeah. Um, she would have to give up her position. So it's the end of February is the filing date and the election's in June. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, uh, that's the primer and then the general's in November. So, yeah, so it's, it's a lot of decision-making for Cheryl and others to have, but you, you would hope that Montgomery County would have a voice in this race because, you know, we're, we've never had a governor, um, from Montgomery County elected and we you know, are 20% of the state and we're the economic I, engine of the state. I think that looking at the current crop of candidates, I think that Rich Madalino has a chance to be a breakout star and for a number of reasons, because he's always one of the most well-informed. And um, I think that if he can raise money, I think he's going to go further than what people give him credit for. So no, I that's, agree. That's, I, that's agree. My I think Rich is great and, and he would be a great 
you know, governor, and he, he's a great politician. I mean, he's, you know, he's a state senator in, in Montgomery County. And the question is, how's that going to play na- and, uh, around the state? And, yeah. you know, will he get the traction that you're talking about? Because he certainly deserves a, a good look from all, from everybody. Because I think he's sort of one of the most talented, in the, if not the most talented in the current pool. Yeah. Um, Doug, you know, wrapping up the interview, looking back at your tenure as attorney general for the state of Maryland, you know, what is, what is that one thing that you can point to to say I'm most proud of? To be honest with you, it's nothing you would have heard of. I mean, it's the, it's the woman who comes up to me at, at church uh, you know, at her church or on the street or says, you know, you helped keep me in my home or you helped. I called your office and and you did this for my family. And it's the little things that sort of really make the difference. I mean, you know, the environmental work, the, you know, the, the civil rights work, the uh, internet, you know, uh, work, the, you know, the hack, the hacking group we put in to prevent hacks and, and, you know, you name it, we've did a lot of good stuff, but I think it's the little stuff, the unsung stuff that really I'll remember when I'm, you know, 80 on my rocking chair. Um, I just think that's, that's sort of why you should, you know, that's why you should go into politics. In my view is to be able to help people. You have to get an enormous amount of power and you have the ability to help folks that really need government to help them and are being unfairly treated. And there's a lot of injustice out there and you try and fix that. And so the extent we're able to make a, a difference in people's lives, I think that's the kind of thing that would probably be the biggest uh, thing that I remember. Well, I started voting. Um, I'm 31, and I started voting in 2004. So I voted for you twice. Um, I would do it again. Well, thank you. Well, yeah. Yes, here's, here's two votes in, you know, in our household, but I, I would do it again. Exactly. I think that I think you're a stand-up guy. I've always found you to be um, – very affable, you know, whatever those articles out, people, people are never, politicians never get the opportunity to, you know, when they're running or in office, they just don't ever get the real true opportunity to be who they want to be or can't say certain things when they're in office. And, um, and the news isn't always fair as we understand it. And, you know, they, I know that, being in the media, we try our very best to get the real story out, and sometimes it doesn't always come through. But that's one of the reasons why I do this Maryland-based show and podcast and I write. And it's, um, it's important that, um, aside from these big media outlets, that we have small guys like myself that are just trying to get some information out there for voters to use when they go to the ballot box and to make those important decisions. Um, and I love politics. I, I follow it every day and try to find out a, a good story and kind of get the real true story behind who people are, why they're doing what they're doing in politics and what their real passion is to make a difference. And for the eight years and for, and many years before that, when you were a public servant here in Montgomery County and elsewhere, uh, I think that you really defined what public service means. And uh, I'm, I'm proud of you. Um, and one of these days we'll get together and grab a, a beer or a cup of coffee or something. And we'll, we'll talk more, but I just really appreciate you coming on tonight, Doug, and, and having this conversation with me. No, well, look, thank you. It's my absolutely my pleasure. Anytime. I'd love to do it. And thanks for doing what you do. I mean, it, it is important to get different perspectives out there and, and have people be informed as to their, you know, once and future elected officials, you know, and it's, uh, it's great that you do it. So I appreciate the opportunity and, Look forward to getting together, as they say, offline or off the air. 
Yeah, man. All right. Well, All right. hope you have a great week. Um, go get them. So uh, keep Thanks, in touch. Ryan. All right. You take it easy, uh, Doug. Have a good one. I appreciate it. You too. All, All right, right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was former Attorney General of the state of Maryland, Doug Gansler, who was a 2014 candidate for governor, former state's attorney here in Montgomery County. Um, we appreciate Doug coming on. Great guy. Um, always interesting. And uh, he's not running for governor this time around. So I'm, I appreciate him coming on. And as a politician or as a, an inspiring politician, you are welcome anytime here on a minor detail radio. It's just me and a microphone having a conversation with you. And I love the, I love to do these things live too, but over the phone is just as, just as well. Um, so with that, um, I wish you all a great week. Um, it's warm out. So enjoy this unseasonably warm fall weather. We'll be back next time at, uh, next week, nine o'clock PM, same time every week, new show. I have no idea what we're going to do for next week, but I have some ideas I'm floating around. So we'll see. Um, okay. Find us on the web at a minor detail.com. My name is Ryan minor. I'm your delightful host. Um, I appreciate you being with me tonight. This will, this now this show is going to be turned into a podcast. So I'll make sure I post it on a minor detail.com. Have a great week, everybody.